Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. Happy non-denominational holiday season. Are you feeling festive, Will? Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm in the apartment that I basically haven't left since March. Uh, and I look out my window and sometimes the seasons change and just judging by the lights on the street it seems to be Christmas do you guys have a tree we do have a tree actually it's a fake tree it's not a real tree and we put stuff on it we've got a couple of presents under it you know we've got some Christmas music playing and the occasional Christmas film on the TV so I guess I guess that means it is the holiday what are your Christmas movies I I have a hard time imagining you watching like every year I'm sure you've noticed there's now sort of a blizzard of these kind of one-off feel-good movies you know how netflix now gives you tags for like all all the overlords at netflix ever feel like they need to show you is just like a thumbnail and then they give you three words so it'll be a movie can be like witty cerebral whimsical whatever and then this and around this time of year there's a whole bunch of them that are called things like the last christmas or whatever just have generic titles and those ones are seasonal festive feel good but i imagine you're not watching those or i don't know maybe you are (laughs) well this week on the important cinema club actually we did an episode on hallmark christmas movies because we were kind of curious like where is the art in these? Is there any art? Like, like <laughs> people get together and make these films. Surely they, they must try and there must be something in there. And I mean, people watch those movies and there are tons of them. There are dozens, hundreds of Hallmark Christmas movies even, and they are all exactly the same. These movies are so successful that basically Netflix has ripped off the formula and is doing it kind of at a higher level now with like the one with Vanessa Hudgens in it. What the hell's that called? Like the Christmas Switch, I think it's called. They're they're doing it at a higher level. You mean there's sort of like 15 characters like Chris, the Hallmark movie now is like at the level of Game of Thrones where there's like seven plot lines in every episode it's like an epic storyline that occurs over seven years like seven christmases is that what you're telling me not not to spoil that episode but we basically did not find the art in them or you know we didn't we didn't find the kind of art that i like but it was just interesting to see like the whole appeal of them is the fact that there is nothing unique about them the fact that they are all the same and you can just have them on as background noise that is the art and and that's fascinating. I've often had a similar thought about Christmas music because I, I mean I I know this is like a cliched complaint, but something that bothers me every single year is that you know the Christmas music is so bad. I mean I already hate the music that like anywhere where you might shop for anything, just all year round there's generic music playing with like a, a very few exceptions. Like there's a local wine rack in my neighborhood where you know the wine rack sucks. There's no good. The, you know the selection's terrible. But the employees at this particular one, they're always vibing and they just do their own music. Mm. And it's and it's always great, even if the wine sucks. But, you know, most places you just get, you know, you just get generic music, like music that sounds like like it was recorded to serenade you while you're having a root canal, like that kind of thing. And uh, at Christmas time or any kind of holiday season, it's especially bad. So I've often wondered, you know, who gets together to record these like soft rock covers of Jingle Bells and, you know, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus and, and, and that kind of stuff. Famous artists, people whose names you know do those. I guess so. I mean, it, it completely eludes me. Although one thing I do like about this time of year is that uh amidst all the christmas shopping every store seems to be playing the red flag which has always baffled me but i like it but getting back to christmas movies something i've noticed is like the jim carrey grinch is always in the top 10 of netflix 
And, you know, this is an example of if you make a Christmas movie, that is just a license to print money forever, forever and ever and ever. Because the Jim Carrey Grinch is a movie that I've never met anyone who likes it. I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, it's awful. It's it's so bad. I'm sure it is. I feel like it came out just sort of when I was a little bit past. I feel like every boy of my generation had a period, you know, a phase early in life when Jim Carrey was sort of sacrosanct and anything he produced was like minted gold. But then eventually you, you come out of that phase. And so for me, I think it was around the time of The Grinch. Uh, I don't know, The Majestic. He kind of did a pivot to more like, quote unquote, serious stuff, mm-hmm. which I didn't like. I've recounted on the show before my memory about uh, watching The Truman Show and not really, you know, it's just it's a Jim Carrey movie. Jim Carrey movies are funny. And just being baffled by the fact that there wasn't really a single laugh in it because there wasn't supposed to be and just not getting it at all. But anyway, I, I never watched The Grinch. Well, if you want to see a movie that really doesn't have a single laugh in it, you should check out The Grinch, which is like, <laughs> which is like on every level of craft, from the makeup to the camera work to the set design, it, it is such an abrasive, awful experience. You know, experimental films like Paul Sherratt's Touching or Stan Brakhage's The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, movies that are meant to actively repulse the viewer are not as repulsive as this film. And yet, by the way, this is the consensus, as far as I know. I don't know anyone who likes this movie. I've traveled far and wide in my day, and I've never heard a kind word for it. And yet, every year, people are just clicking play on it and and experiencing it all over again. But yeah, I don't know. Do, do you have Christmas movies? Do you have Christmas movies you like? Or any Christmas cultural paraphernalia that you check out? I have to say, Christmas for me as an adult is kind of still a work in progress. And this year, it's, it's you know, it's obviously hard to, you know, have a quote-unquote real Christmas. You know, I'm going to be spending it with my girlfriend, but I can't see either of my parents, obviously. Yeah, this is, for me, I realized the first year that I won't be seeing my family, which is, uh, you know, it's been an unbroken 31-year streak that comes to a close this year, and I feel a little sad about it, I have to admit. Did you have rituals with your family? What would you guys do for Christmas? I don't know if we had rituals per se, but now that I think of it, rituals of a kind develop. I mean, you know, simple things just like decorating the Christmas tree and seeing the same ornaments year after year or hearing the same holiday music. Uh, You know, my, my parents and I always loved the, you know, ever since it came out, the Bob Dylan Christmas album, for example. I was kind of thinking we should do a whole episode on the Bob Dylan Christmas album. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the Bob Dylan Christmas album, and I think there's something about it that really captures the spirit of the holidays. You you asked a very interesting philosophical question about it on Twitter a while ago. He, he threads a very peculiar needle with it. He knows that he sounds ridiculous. Like, part of the meaning of the album is that it's insane that Bob Dylan is doing a Christmas album. The guy who once sung... Of war and peace, the truth just twists, its curfew gullet glides, is now singing Must Be Santa. But the thing is, he is also somebody who knows and appreciates the history of music better than anyone else. Somebody who has worked in so many different genres, and he's like, okay, a Christmas album. That's a genre, and now let's do a Christmas album. And yes, it's funny, but let's also pay respect to the genre by by just doing it. And I think there's something kind of beautiful and magical about that, as is the fact, too, that he knows he sounds bad in it. I mean, I I say bad. Unpolished is the right word, because I love Bob Dylan's voice. You love Bob Dylan's voice. I love hearing him sing these songs. And so much Christmas entertainment is sort of cloyingly perfect. Really, the holiday should be about having fun. The holiday should be about, you know, uh, letting your hair down and having a good time and and not caring. And, And Bob Dylan understands that, I think. 
It will never not be funny to me that the guy who wrote It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding uh, also has a Christmas album. Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who comes around on special night? Who comes around on special night? Special night, beard that's white. Must be Santa, must be Santa, must be Santa, Santa Claus. I can say that while I've not always done Christmas perfectly as an adult, I was crazy about it as a kid. I mean, I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, waking up on Christmas morning or, you know, as I discovered when I went and bothered my parents, I discovered it was actually 3 a.m. You know, I would wake up uh, in the middle of the night (laughs) so excited to just like run downstairs and the tree, see the tree all lit up and the presents underneath. I was really bad at opening my presents too quickly and having Christmas be over. So my parents, after a while, devised an excellent tactic for dealing with this problem was that they would always get me a movie. Do you remember when you're a kid, those Disney VHSs would come in like a special glossy VHS that was like, well, big clamshell cases. Yeah. 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 So I would, I would always get whatever the Disney movie du jour was. And my parents would say, well, why don't you watch this? And then you can open the rest of your presents. And then that way you'll still have presents later. So I don't know, I'd watch like Aladdin or whatever the one that year was. And then I would open whatever the big present was, which was, you know, usually like a Lego pirate ship or something. And then my dad would build it for me as I uh, supervised. (laughs) Well, I would just uh, tear open the presents in like orgasmic fury. (laughs) Before we get into the movie, I just want to talk about something I discovered on the internet this week. It was pointed out to me and it's something that I think uh, bridges the wild worlds of film and politics. A long time ago on this podcast, we talked about a movie called British Sounds, directed by Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Gorin. And you're going to tell us uh, this is your Christmas movie? This is your go-to on Christmas Eve? (laughs) No, uh, I would would probably rather watch Batman Returns, if I'm being honest. But but a close second is British Sounds. By the way, this is not holiday-related at all, but I just want to put it on the record for Michael and Us Nation. I thought you were going to try to do like a British Sounds as a Christmas movie, sort of like, you know, you're going to do the art film version of the sort of epic bacon thing people started, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, where they were like, did you know Die Hard is a Christmas movie? I remember, by the way, the very first time I saw somebody say that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say who it was because it's somebody we both know. But I saw it. I saw them. <laughs> I saw them tweet, and you'll laugh when I tell you. But I saw them tweet it, and I favorited the tweet because I thought, oh, that's clever. And little did I know that it was probably already out there in the ether. Um, anyway, Jean- wait. Who? So wait. Who was it? It was. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd laugh. (laughs) Anyway, that film, British Sounds, was part of a famous period in film history and Jean-Luc Godard's career specifically, where he and Jean-Pierre Gorin, first of all, they got really into Mao and started to realize that all film was decadent, all film was upholding the status quo, and they needed to create a new kind of film, a new a film that wasn't entertainment because entertainment was reactionary. They needed to create a new kind of film that sort of shocked the audience out of its complacency, which, I mean, it sounds like I'm making fun of it, and maybe I am a little bit, but it's like, I actually think there's like some nobility in that goal. Well, ideologically speaking, it's it was a very interesting project, and honestly, whether or not you think it succeeded, and I mean, I think probably on, a, on an aesthetic level, it largely 
largely failed, although I'm sure Godard would dispute that. And I, I guess all I mean by that is, you know, the films the films from that period are not always particularly interesting to watch. I mean, they're all, they're more interesting to kind of talk about and think about. They're very interesting conceptually, mm-hmm. but it's nonetheless pretty incredible to harken back to a time when, when there were lots of artists who, you know, thought in those terms. Like, this can be a revolutionary medium. What can we do with the form of cinema mm-hmm. to liberate it from its, you know, bourgeois decadence? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was a period that lasted from the early 70s to the mid-70s. Godard went on to continue his very storied career, eventually coming back to something resembling commercial narrative cinema. Uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin also continued working. Uh, they had a, they had a falling out. I don't think they've seen each other in a very long time. But I found out this week that until very recently, he taught in the film department at the University of California, San Diego. And I did not know this, but his Rate My Professor page is still up. That made my head explode. The thought Holy that shit. this this legend this legend of cinema, this guy Jean-Pierre Garin, the thought of having him as a professor, it's like it's like having a world historic figure in in your class and sharply divided these reviews. There are some kids who are who are like what an honor, what an honor to have the great Jean-Pierre Garin, uh, but there are other kids who really don't know who he is. And quite understandably, I think, I mean, I can imagine being in this man's class, quite understandably, want nothing to do with him. I just want to read one of his Rate My Professor reviews that I found so amusing. Uh, For quality, they gave him a two out of five. Said, extremely boring three-hour lectures that are filled with mumbling. He never has a point. He shows French or Japanese movies only. All the movies were oppressive towards women. The midterm is a six-page paper, single-spaced, and final, 12 pages, double-spaced. The teacher is unprofessional. In the realm of the senses is something that you can expect to see in this class. <laughs> I see every line of that, and I say, sign me the fuck up. I want in. That sounds like You're my like kind of class. oppressive to women in the realm of the senses? I fucking love that movie. Let's do it. There's another one who gives him 1.5 and says, I really did not like this class, not in all caps. JP is knowledgeable and passionate about films, but he constantly insults, quote, our generation, unquote, for being stupid and expects students to somehow magically understand everything. I've had upper divisions easier than this class. No final, but a 12-page paper analysis. Says it's graded on effort, but I beg to differ. <laughs> oh, a 12 12-page 12 paper. I'm so sorry. But Will, you're missing, you're you're leaving out the most important part of Rate My Professor, which is that there's another rating, which is the Chili Peppers for uh, how hot they are. What's, what's this rating there? Sadly, that was taken out. But I think in lieu of that, maybe I'll leave my own rating, which is just a, a number of eggplant emojis in praise of Mr. Goran and give him a five. <laughs> anyway, speaking of cinema, speaking of radical revolutionary cinema that that asks serious questions about what can be done with the form <laughs> folks it's the holiday episode of the mike Linus podcast so we're taking it easy this week we are going to do a deep ideological reading of the 1994 disney tim allen classic the santa claus hey you this christmas scott calvin's getting into the spirit the only way he can by accident hang on because the greatest holiday adventure of all is here you're the new santa what you put on the suit you're the big guy you put on a little weight does this look like a little weight to you walt disney pictures presents tim allen if we go straight on this road and we hit i-94 the santa claus rated 18 
starts Friday, November 11th at a theater near you. Well, you asked me before about, you know, what are your Christmas movies? And I mean, I can't say I've seen this probably since about, I don't know, 1998. But there were a few years uh, in a row where uh, this was a mainstay of Christmas for me. I mean, I watched it you know, without fail. I probably also watched it a lot, if I'm honest, outside the context of Christmas. Like, it was just a movie I liked watching. There's probably a little bit of trivia that we should get out of the way uh, right off the top here. This is actually a movie, a lot of people don't know this, but it was filmed in the greater Toronto area. So this is one that we Canadians can claim. It was all filmed in Oakville. I believe the, the reindeer were from the Metro Toronto Zoo. Which is actually uh, too appropriate because this is a film about divorce. And my parents actually informed me of their looming divorce after taking me to, to the Metro Toronto Zoo. And fittingly enough, uh, this movie was brought to us by the Mother Corp, Disney Corporation. Tim Allen plays a typical American everyman, uh, as connoted by the fact that he inexplicably has two first names. He's Scott Calvin. I guess the actual reason for Tim Allen having two first names in this movie is that the initials are SC. Would you believe I never uh, registered that? Is there is there a gag made about that in this film? And I was looking at my phone. Yes, there's absolutely a gag. Now, I mean, what that says about uh, your fastidiousness in preparing for this podcast is, well, it says nothing good. Because <laughs> every one of these crapola films we watch, I do a close reading. I sit there, I make notes. You know what You know what else I do? I torrent the movies. Uh, and by that, I mean I uh, acquire them legally through a paid uh, streaming service. In this case, I watched it on the Disney Plus subscription that I definitely have. <laughs> um, He's got fucking embroidered pajamas or shit, right? Something like that. But yes, Tim Allen has embroidered pajamas. They right. absolutely uh, they absolutely make a gimmick out of this. I may, I may have been looking at like Pornhub on the other window, you know. So. <laughs> I don't have any social media apps on my phone. So so that way I, I just I sit there with a pen and paper. I watch every single second. It's a shame that uh, that can't be said of both the hosts of the Michael and Us podcast. I mean, if you're trying to shame me for, you know, letting my mind wander during the Santa Claus, it's not going to work, buddy. Well, you know, the film teaches us that imagination is important. So who am I to, who am I to attack you for this? Uh, anyway, the film opens. Uh, we meet Tim Allen, who's playing, uh, as I said, a man with two first names, uh, Scott Calvin. He is a toy company executive. He's not a man who makes toys. He's not a toy maker. Uh, the film opens with uh, his, I don't know, ghastly end of year company toast or whatever. He's he's toasted as, you know, uh, a member of the, uh, I don't know, West Coast sales team or whatever. And then, you know, the first act of the movie is basically concerned with showing us what a totally absentee dad Tim Allen is. And it's pretty incredible. I mean, what you see is a tour de force of bad parenting. And I know the film wants us to be sympathetic to Scott Calvin, uh, you know, because he's a single dad, you know, and his uh, his ex-wife is remarried to a very pedantic psychiatrist. His son doesn't want to stay with him on Christmas Eve. He's begging his mom, do I have to stay? Will you be here at the crack of dawn to pick me up? But I mean, come on, he's late to pick his son up on Christmas Eve. He's driving home. And actually, this is funny because this scene where he's driving home and he's driving home on like a completely empty highway and he's telling his ex-wife, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to be late. Uh, there's yeah, there's a three car pile up. The traffic is terrible. I was five years old when this movie came out and I did not understand at all that Tim Allen is lying in this scene. So I think I probably missed, you know, that along with all the other kind of signifiers early in the movie that he's a terrible parent. That occurred to me, too, while watching it, because I saw this movie theatrically 
basically at age five. And the appeal to this movie when you're a small child is you get to find out how Santa does his stuff. If a house doesn't have a chimney, he creates a chimney. Stuff like that. Stuff that's not very interesting to me anymore, but was very fascinating to me at age five. This is one of a spate of divorced dad, high concept comedies that glutted theater screens in the 90s from <laughs> Liar Liar to Jungle to Jungle. Jingle All the Way. All the Can way. we please watch Jingle All the Way sometime? Let's do that next year. Next year, we get together and we watch Jingle All the Way. By the way, Jungle to Jungle, same director, same star as this. They clearly had a winning formula. Um <laughs> I mean, the divorce dad angle, which, you know, obvious end of history stuff happening here. I don't even need to explain it. I don't have to get into it. But that that's I was hoping we could avoid the phrase end of history this week. And yet watching this movie, I realize that my brain has been so broken by this podcast that every 90s movie we watch just seems like it's about capitalism in the 1990s. You know, I think that episode we did with Megan and Bronco about You've Got Mail was a kind of Rubicon crossing for me. It's like, actually, all these movies really are about capitalism in the 1990s. And they're all attempts to kind of rationalize and explain it. And I have to say, I think this movie is no different. But but actually, I mean, it sounds ridiculous <laughs> when you put it that way. But I'm sorry, the canon of movies that studios were releasing in the 90s speak for themselves <laughs> never before and never since has there been a decade of cinema where there was just such affluence well actually you know what i'm gonna take that back that's that's bullshit in the 1930s at the height of the depression they loved watching movies where like fred astaire was some rich guy um <laughs> so i don't i don't know what to say about that don't trust me as a film historian um but nevertheless it seems that the uh, movies in the 90s were just overwhelmingly preoccupied with three things one crises of masculinity which by the way is the theme of the third collaboration between tim allen and this director 2001's joe somebody <laughs> number two breakdown of the american family because the american family unit is the bedrock of society and number three the fact that capitalism has won and everybody has a beautiful suburban house and yet nobody is happy these are the three things that keep recurring overwhelmingly, incessantly in films from the 90s. And if you made movies like this today, people would laugh them off the screen. If you made American Beauty today, people would rightly regard it as an atrocity. If you put out American Beauty today, it would have about the same cachet as like any of those things you scroll past while you're looking for something to watch on Netflix. No, not even. People would not even just dismiss it. If American Beauty came out today, it would be a canceled film. It would be a problematic film. Well, that's true. That's true for, for a lot other of reasons. reasons, though. You're right about that. I mean, and the reason for that would be that people would cancel it because they'd be like, who gives a shit about some suburb white suburban patriarch which you know actually fair enough actually yes why. yes they yeah. would be right to <laughs> yeah yeah and also one who's like lusting after like his daughter's 16 year old friend who at the end of the movie when he doesn't have sex with her you're supposed to regard that as the most heroic act you've ever seen <laughs> but movies are the collective unconscious you know and the santa claus like all movies is an example of that by the way people should check out our episode on american beauty if they haven't heard it yet but another reason you couldn't make this movie today is, uh, did you catch the uh, extremely politically incorrect joke about Denny's that happens early? Denny's. It's always open. I don't want to eat here. What are you talking about? Everybody likes Denny's. It's an American institution. Are you with Hatsutashi? No. 
So having burnt the Christmas turkey, Scott Calvin takes his son out to get him a Christmas dinner. Uh, his initial choice is a, an Italian restaurant, which uh, unfortunately it's closed. So he takes his son to Denny's and his son is saying, uh, I don't like Denny's. And he says, everybody likes Denny's. It's an American institution. And then it cuts to a bunch of uh, Chinese Americans uh, speaking Chinese to each other, uh, having dinner at Denny's. You could not put that in a movie today. Actually, can, can we pause on that point? Because I actually think that's very interesting because that shows the anxieties of a society that has become like the sole remaining superpower. It does show the insecurity because if anything, isn't the lesson here that Denny's is a cosmopolitan? institution and that america is a melting pot yeah you know denny's is the family restaurant that americans you know from every cultural background can enjoy Mm -hmm. very unfortunate that we have to have such a reactionary nationalist bent in this tim allen santa claus movie Although thinking about it probably is the type of joke Tim Allen would have put into Last Man Standing, uh, or as we like to call it in this show, Alt-Right Home Improvement. Okay, I actually want to pause on that point too. We will eventually finish synopsizing the plot of this. But Last Man Standing, and in fact, Tim Allen's entire career is interesting to me because, I mean, it's basically the same as it was in 1992. And yet society, or, or at least the culture industries have changed to the point where like, you couldn't just make Home Improvement today. That show is supposed to be like the default normal family. And now nobody would accept that as the default normal family. And so instead, when you make that show, you have to have like a chip on your shoulder and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's what a family looks like. This is the default family. Are you triggered? Are you triggered? Yeah, right. I mean, it's like a typical plot on Last Man Standing is like Tim Allen finds out that there's like a teacher at his kid's school who wears a hijab and then he like protests it or something. In the 90s, when Tim Allen was doing stand up, all his stand up would just be about like, oh, women like this, but men like this. But now if you do that comedy, people, frankly, quite rightly object to it. And so now it's... It has the edge of like, you know, contrarianism. Yeah, women are like this. What are you going to do about it, huh? Triggered? Right. It's like Reagan Clinton era conservatism now like comes across as transgressive. Mm -hmm. So these guys can pretend like they're edgy. I know what microaggressions are. It's the latest liberal attack at free speech. And a lot of fun if you do them right. But actually, speaking of home improvement, just to take another Tim Allen uh, digression here. One day we will absolutely do an episode on home improvement. There was a time uh, a while ago, back when my colleague Bronco was still in the city, and Will and Bronco struck up a conversation about home improvement. And, you know, one of the surest signs that the enterprise of podcasting is fundamentally evil and noxious, uh, you know, came out of this uh, exchange because we're walking down the street. I think we're on our way to get, you know, wine or something. And they're talking about it. And I'm, I'm saying, like, hold it in, guys. Hold it in, guys. We have to record this. We have to, we have to monetize this. Or maybe I didn't literally say that, but that's what I was thinking. I was saying, like, we have to recreate this on a podcast sometime. That's how you know that you're too deep down the podcasting rabbit hole is when two of your friends are having a fun conversation and your first thought is, we have to capture this as content so that it can be monetized. (laughs) Anyway, turning back to the Santa Claus, in act one of the movie, we get this tour de force of, you know, bad parenting and, you know, having uh, having failed at dinner, having failed at everything. Uh, Scott Calvin decides to read his son a bedtime story, which is The Night Before Christmas. I should add here, you know, you said Tim Allen's the star of the film. I think the true star of this film is uh, the child actor, who I think is now probably just a few years older than us, Eric Lloyd, who was in another film very dear to me growing up, 
Dunstan checks in, which I don't know. Maybe we could do another episode on that. Uh, I watched that so many times as a kid. I mean, that's not seasonal, but it feels very festive to me. I mean, they check a monkey into a hotel. I mean, what do you want? That one features uh, Pee Wee Herman as the exterminator. So I would be down to check that out. And Rupert Everett as the evil English patrician who abuses animals. Anyway, shortly after uh, Scott Calvin reads his son Charlie the night before Christmas, we get into act two of the movie. The tension here so far is concerned the fact that Scott Calvin, not particularly well liked by his son. And why would he be? He seems like he's a pretty bad dad. He's too busy being a corporate executive at the toy company to be very present in his son's life. And the new patriarch in his son's life is this guy called Neil. Uh, who his ex-wife has remarried, who, you know, very pedantically uh, has disenchanted his son, told him Santa isn't real, et cetera, et cetera. How can, how can reindeer fly? Whatever. So Scott Calvin decides he's going to draw a line in the snow here and say this far and no further. Uh, and he pretends that he believes in Santa Claus. But after reading Charlie the story, there arises such a clatter on the roof. Uh, and when Scott Calvin goes out to investigate this, He sees none other than Santa Claus himself on the roof. He's so surprised by Tim Allen, falls off the roof, and instantly dies. So this is a movie where Tim Allen quite literally kills Santa Claus. So I always remember this scene wrong. I always misremember it. I always think that he shoots Santa Claus. And that must be because I was so traumatized by this scene as a child, (laughs) this hideous Santa Claus death scene. That, you know, I build it up in my imagination. I I always picture him wielding a shotgun. I mean, that is a more plausible, like, that is what would happen in, like, suburban America, right? And it's like, you know, Tim Allen would be the MAGA guy who would just come (laughs) out and just, like, without even a second thought, would just, like, see someone on the roof and just, like, riddle him with bullets and then probably get away with it in court. Anyway, as the night unfolds and, you know, Scott Calvin dons the Santa uniform, you know, because he's still trying to show to his son... You know, the tension here is that he's told his son he believes in Santa. So, you know, he's uh, he's puts on the uniform and the reindeer, to his surprise, you know, take him to several houses. And he and Charlie have a whole night together delivering presents to the children of the world. Now, there's a few things that I think are pretty notable at this sequence. Point number one is when Scott Calvin as Santa Claus arrives, you know, when he gets sucked down the chimney and he arrives in people's living rooms, there already seem to be presents under the tree. Now, just keep just bookmark that. Keep that in your head. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Something else that happens is, you know, at one point he thinks Charlie's fallen out of the sleigh and then he looks, uh, you know, as they're flying high above the clouds and he looks into the back of the sleigh and he sees that Charlie is having fun with a puppy who's presumably being delivered to someone as a gift. I think these two details are important because, you know, they don't make puppies in Santa's workshop. So the implication here is that he's actually just delivering uh, gifts that have been made by someone else. And I'll come back to that in a second. So when they arrive at the North Pole, the first thing that happens is that the movie establishes that the North Pole is actually very high tech. Okay, so the North Pole is actually literal. It it comes out of the ground and it has a little keypad on it, you know, that the elf, uh, the elf dials into. Now, as Charlie is enchanted by Santa's workshop and Scott Calvin learns that he's the boss, we're informed that Santa's workshop is actually a pretty hierarchical place. You know, it's basically like a, an Amazon warehouse where, you know, an elf named Bernard is is actually like, you know, he's the floor manager and he's telling the workers, you know, you're on the clock. Uh, stop the chattering. Get back to work. Now, as one elf brings Scott Calvin his hot chocolate, she utters what I think is one of the most important lines in the movie. You know, he's tell he's telling her, you know, this must be a dream. How can this be real? And she says, you don't understand. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. 
And so begins the incredibly protracted next stage of the movie where Tim Allen literally turns into Santa Claus. Can I just pause here for a moment? Because I want to point out a logical flaw that has bothered me ever since I was a child. Judge Reinhold, Tim Allen, all the adults in the film, they don't believe that Santa Claus is real. And yet, Santa Claus is an objective fact in this universe. He objectively travels around the world, deposits presents at people's houses. There is a North Pole infrastructure. Like, he, he leaves presents that were not there at the beginning of the night. So it's not a matter of faith. Did I miss something? Is there an explanation for this? Yes, there absolutely is an explanation. And this is, re- this is really what I'm coming to here. Neil and Charlie's mother get very upset that Scott Calvin is uh, is representing himself as Santa Claus. And, you know, they basically think he's mentally ill. Neil says, you know, uh, Scott, I think you're taking the Santa Claus thing to an unhealthy level. Here's my card. Call me. And so they they end up uh, trying to suspend uh, Scott Calvin's visitation rights, basically making it so that he can't see his son. But right after, there's an incredibly important conversation where Laura Miller, played by Wendy Crusom, and Neil, played by Judge Reinhold, they have this very important conversation where they talk about when it was that they stopped believing in Santa. And both of them revealed that the thing that made them stop believing in Santa was not, not exactly getting older. It was that they didn't get uh, something they wanted. Laura Miller wanted some kind of a dating board game or something. Uh, You know, Neil, he wanted an Oscar Mayer weenie whistle. So the thing that made them both stop believing in Santa really just had to do with Santa failing to provide what they wanted. Now, before too long, Scott Kelvin goes back to the North Pole and like any good entrepreneur, you know, he starts innovating. So the elves are, their minds are blown. Charlie's there too to help out. Uh, They're saying, we haven't seen anything this good in ages. They design a flame-retardant Santa costume. They design a new sleigh, which Charlie says, we're attempting vertical takeoff, which I love because that was actually a feature of, I'm forgetting the name of the particular fighter jet, where that was the the feature that you, (laughs) like, American-made fighter jet. It was going to dominate all airspace in the future because it could do vertical takeoff. I th- I'm pretty sure it was literally the one that uh, Arnold flies in True Lies, which which we talked about last week. So anyway, you know, uh, there's not much more to say about the plot of the film. I mean, a, an arrest warrant is issued for Chris Kringle because, you know, Neil and Laura think that uh, Charlie's been kidnapped. You know, eventually they rediscover the magic of uh, Christmas or whatever when they're convinced that actually, you know, Scott Calvin is literally Santa Claus. But now we finally come to what I think uh, this movie is about. Hang on, you didn't provide an explanation for for the paradox of why the all these adults don't believe in Santa Claus, even though he's an objective fact. Just because fucking Judge Reinhold didn't get his stupid weenie whistle. Well, it's coming. Uh, don't you worry. Now, as somebody <laughs> who counts calories and macros, you know, I'm a te- I'm I'm tempted to interpret this film as you know uh, a parable about what happens when lean bulking goes awry. You know, and you start to think, well, I'm in a caloric surplus, so, you know, I might as well have that cookie. I might as well have that glass of uh, hot chocolate. That's helping me get bigger and stronger. I mean, that's kind of what happens to Tim Allen in this movie. But I think the actual explanation, what this movie is really about, (laughs) this is another one of those things where I sort of developed this half joking and I'm actually really serious. Don't forget that the reason Tim Allen was absentee at the beginning of the movie, why was he a bad father? Well, it's because he was too busy being an executive at the toy company. Now, he explains to Charlie, you know, who's very upset at the end of the movie that, you know, he's going to be off, uh, you know, being Santa. He's going to be bringing toys to the other kids all around the world. You know, he explains to Charlie, the other kids, you know, they need me too. 
And this gets back to my point about how, you know, when Tim Allen is delivering the toys, you know, and when he's suspiciously got a puppy in the back of the, you know, in the back of Santa's sleigh, you know, a puppy is not a thing they manufacture in the North Pole. Even the letters that uh, he gets, the naughty or nice list in this movie is like delivered to Scott Calvin's house by Purilator. So I think what the movie is really about, you know, and I think this is what ties together all the plots about Christmas and toys and Santa Claus and divorce I think it could all be summed up in the statement, you know, what if the real Christmas was the corporate sales executives we met along the way? What if capitalism was the real Santa? What if the Amazon warehouse was the real Santa Claus? Neil and Laura didn't stop believing in Santa Claus because they became disenchanted, uh, because they stopped believing in Santa Claus metaphysically. They became disenchanted because they didn't get the thing that they wanted. And like Jeff Bezos, Tim Allen shows up at Santa's workshop and he says, you know, we've got to innovate. The toy that, uh, you know, his sales team is being celebrated for at the beginning is called something like do it all for you, Dolly, or something like that. So what the film is saying is that the real magic of Christmas is getting uh, the exact tailor-made consumer product that you want uh, delivered with absolute perfection, airdropped to your door by a team of private delivery people. You know, forget the postal service. Yeah, Santa's a scab in this movie, by the way, also. And is there exploitation going on in the workshop? Yeah, well, maybe we're not really thinking about that. This is just too convenient. I got to get my puppy. I got to get, you know, all the seasons of Game of Thrones on Blu-ray delivered via the gig economy. That is the arc of the film in this movie. Tim Allen plays a toy executive who literally kills Santa Claus. But then it turns out that the toy executive was actually Santa Claus. All oh, along. my God. We don't we don't, <laughs> we don't we don't need we don't need real Santa Claus. Now I really am joking, but, you know, in my incredibly, like, Michael and us brained interpretation of this movie, you you can also read the the real Santa Claus, you know, the one that Tim Allen kills. You know, he represents... Jesus Christ. No, no, this this is good. Keep going. Keep going. This is is so correct. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think even Tim Allen himself would tell you this is true. Yeah, 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 yeah. He represents a pre-1989 world, you know, a world of grand narratives of history, a world that still Mm. has, you know, (laughs) a world that is still (laughs) a world that is still enchanted where, you know, people think they can master history. They think they can master nature. And what the film is saying is, don't worry, the baton uh, has been passed all the grand narratives of history, you know, whether they come from monotheism or dialectical materialism, Marxism, whatever, that's all over with. But don't worry, the baton has been passed to, you know, liberal democratic capitalism. Francis Fukuyama was right. History is over. The real Santa is Amazon. <laughs> well, as the right wing member of the podcast, I disagree with your theory. I think the old Santa Claus represents God. OK, can you develop that thesis a little bit for me? Well, it's very simple. Our postmodern society has destroyed God. Okay, you're actually kind of winning me over to that one now. <laughs> well, I have to say, I was pretty convinced of my own take on the movie, but you're uh, you're kind of persuading me. Tim Allen uh, with the Santa Claus issuing an early foray against the scourge of postmodern neo-Marxism. Now watch this drive. The people's flag is deepest red, it's shrouded off the mass of day. And ere the limbs grew stiff and cold, their hearts blood died in every fold. Then raise the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll live and die. 
stoke cows flinch and trace a sneer will keep the red flag flying here. It witnessed many a deed and vow We mustn't change its colour now Raise the scarlet standard high If it gets false, we'll never die No cowards flinch and traitor sneer We'll keep the red flag flying here It will recall the triumphs past It gives the hope of peace at last The banner bright, the symbol plain Of human rights and human gain Raise the scarlet standard high, and if it falls, we'll never die. So cowards flinch and traitor sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying I do a close reading of every single one of these movies. And you know what I do is I torrent the movie and then I plug it into my TV with an HDMI cable. And that way I can't look at Twitter. Oh, I've got the fucking sirens again. Hang on. They're arresting me for, they're coming to arrest me because I pirated the movie. (laughs) 